Some of the best conversations occur when having a special meal with family, friends, or even people you've just met. With the Charlie the Mini in the podcast, we do our best to capture this sentiment as we explore topics that center on the unique and often undertold experiences of marginalized persons in an informal but still engaging way. The Charlie the Mini in the podcast is a joint production between Lawrence Talks, Inc., and KU Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. On today's show, my co-host Margarita Arroyo and I sit down with three KU scholars for discussion on what going back to normal means for marginalized persons in the time of COVID-19, how the pandemic calls for greater trans-border cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico, and what life means for those who are voiceless. This recording is bilingual with some of our presenters giving their talk in Spanish. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. David Tamez. And I am Margarita Lanyas Arroyo. And this is Charlie the Merienda, a podcast produced by Lawrence Talks Inc. and KU Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. CDM or CDM is dedicated to having critical discussions regarding issues concerning Latin American communities in the U.S., the Caribbean, Mesoamerica, and South America. The topic of our show today concerns Latinx bodies and the effects COVID-19 has had on marginalized bodies and how getting back to normal may not be the preferred end for everyone. Today on our show, we have Dr. Araceli Masterson-Algar, who is an associate professor in Portuguese and Spanish at the University of Kansas. We have Dr. Silvia Fernandez-Quintanilla, Public and Digital Humanities Postdoctoral Research Fellow a Hall Center of Humanities at the University of Kansas, and Hannah Sawyer, who is a student in the MFA Creative Writing Program at the University of Kansas. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. And for our first uh, segment, we are going to have uh, our panelists or our guests introduce their topics and, and uh, give a summary of their position piece, which can be found on online at uh, lawrencetalks.org. And we can begin with Hannah. Okay, so yes, David and Margarita, thank you again so much for having me on. I just want to briefly give a disclaimer. I, I don't have much background um, in Latinx studies. And so I'm, I'm speaking from a very limited perspective, I would say, on this topic. Um, however, I am disabled. I'm a white disabled woman. And the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, has really showcased, I believe, how our society and culture treats marginalized bodies and marginalized individuals. And what I mean by that specifically is not only disabled individuals, but also individuals of color. And then looking at the intersection of that, right, and how, how various systems of oppression work to oppress um, people with intersecting identities and various ways that their bodies are marginalized. So um, my position piece that I was really thinking through and I was focusing on really came from two, well, multiple, multiple anecdotes that I was hearing at the time that I had written this. 
Um, and one, so I'm my I'm in Iowa right now, my home state of Iowa. And our governor has never, she never issued a stay-at-home order. Um, she has, I mean, it, it's never happened. Our state is still open. Um, and at the time of me writing this piece, three of 25 staff members of the Iowa, Iowa Veterans Home had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, so that was one thing that really informed then my thinking through this. Um, another anecdote was that I have a friend who lives in Austin, and her friend tested positive for COVID-19. Um, she had tried to get tested five other times before that final testing, and it was only after she refused to leave the hospital that she finally got the test. And this woman was also a Venezuelan immigrant. Um, and so then lastly, I was looking at different policies in different states for pandemics and these policies that have been put in place earlier and how some of them, and specifically I was looking at uh, a policy that is in place in Tennessee, has specific exclusion or criteria for exclusion. So essentially looking at um, under what criteria are individuals excluded from receiving critical care or excluded from being transferred to critical care in a pandemic. And in Tennessee, one of the one of those criteria includes individuals with neuromuscular conditions, including my disease. So these were three different sort of anecdotes and stories that were sort of swirling together to create this realization for me that, of course, right, all of these identities intersect in various ways and show that healthcare is, it has already been, it is already difficult for individuals of specific marginalized communities and with specific marginalized bodies to receive, and it is even more so during the pandemic, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that I think that we can also say that a large majority of the deaths that result from COVID-19 will ultimately not just be as a result of the virus, but that they have been and will continue to be facilitated by an intersection of various oppressive and violent systems, systems which which privilege certain bodies and thus certain lives over others. Great. Thank you, Hannah. And uh, next, uh, Sylvia. Hola, muy buenas tardes. ¿Cómo están? Espero que ustedes y sus seres queridos se encuentren dentro de todo bien ante esta situación tan difícil. Primero que nada, quiero darle gracias a todo el equipo de charla de merienda por la invitación y a sus patrocinadores por hacer este evento posible. Creo que es muy importante tener esta conversación acerca de, 
de COVID-19 y los cuerpos de personas de color, en este caso de comunidades latinas, indígenas, afrolatinas en la frontera y en Estados Unidos. Con la intención de llegar a una audiencia más amplia, daré mi presentación en español y en la sección de preguntas puedo contestar en inglés y en español. Mi presentación en un principio se iba a enfocar completamente en un estudio literario que hice sobre los flujos migratorios y la movilidad transfronteriza en la frontera de Ciudad Juárez, El Paso, a través de obras literarias escritas por mujeres nacidas en la frontera, en esta frontera. Sin embargo, dada la situación actual respecto a muchos de los cambios que han sucedido en la frontera a raíz de la pandemia, para mí es muy importante hablar de este tema basado en hechos recientes. En Spring Break estuve allá, me tocó ver el inicio de la pandemia en estas ciudades, donde desgraciadamente el número de infectados ha incrementado mucho en un corto tiempo y bueno, toda mi familia vive en esta región, de la cual estoy muy orgullosa de ser de ahí y de ser transfronteriza. Entonces, continuamente, pues, estoy, estoy al tanto de la situación que está cambiando drásticamente y está afectando muchísimo a, a las comunidades vulnerables en esta región y, bueno, a a los transfronterizos, por otra parte. Los transfronterizos, transfronterizas, son aquellos que desempeñan la movilidad transfronteriza, es decir, cruzar de México a Estados Unidos y viceversa de manera rutinaria, tomando en cuenta las distintas oportunidades y limitaciones específicas de la vida fronteriza y las diferencias aquellas en el interior de cada país. La población que lleva a cabo esta movilidad son los ciudadanos estadounidenses, residentes permanentes y mexicanos u de otra nacionalidad que cuentan con la documentación requerida para cruzar por los puertos de entrada, es decir, el puente de manera regular por distintas razones. Dentro de la literatura fronteriza, en este caso mediante la crónica de Adriana Candia o la poesía de Amalia Ortiz, por mencionar algunas, uno de los temas más complejos y retratados en esta literatura es el flujo migratorio, la movilidad transfronteriza y el retorno involuntario, la deportación. La complejidad de estos fenómenos, y quizá ahí radique su atractivo literario, toca de lleno asuntos sociohistóricos, situaciones de violencia, rastreo de un mejor porvenir familiar, alteridad al estar en contacto con lo otro y con el otro, y cuestiones de espacialidad, como mencionan Carlos Urán y Montiel, Amalia Rodríguez y Antonio, Antonio Rubio en Cartografía Literaria de Ciudad Juárez. Con esto en mente, algunas de las historias presentes en estas obras representan a mujeres que desempeñan la movilidad transfronteriza a través de dinámicas como el vivir en la frontera mexicana y cruzar a Estados Unidos con visa de turista 
y trabajar en el área de limpieza de residencias estadounidenses. En este caso, al trabajar sin documentos legales, se vuelven trabajadoras indocumentadas y están expuestas a un salario más bajo del mínimo, no poder recibir los beneficios del gobierno, además de estar continuamente buscando estrategias para cruzar <coughs> sin tener problemas con los oficiales de customers de custom, de inmigración. Por otra parte, están las historias de las mujeres que viven y trabajan en el lado estadounidense de la frontera y cruzan a México a comprar mercado, medicamento y en algunos casos en busca de diversión nocturna. Aquí vemos cómo ellas desempeñan una movilidad transfronteriza teniendo una serie de beneficios y libertades a raíz de su ciudadanía o residencia estadounidense y su estatus superior al ser asociado por la moneda con la que pagan que es en dólares. Estos dos ejemplos me llevan a discutir el fenómeno de la movilidad transfronteriza en estos momentos donde a causa de la pandemia los gobiernos federales y municipales han implementado una serie de restricciones migratorias y de cruce que han afectado a las comunidades transfronterizas y a la economía binacional de la frontera. La frontera no está completamente cerrada. Los ciudadanos estadounidenses y residentes pueden cruzar Estados Unidos mencionando que van a trabajar, que esa es una de las prioridades que se ha dado. El cruce de carga pesada sigue estando activo, lo cual aquí vemos esa disparidad entre a quién se le da la prioridad y a quién no. Quienes tienen muchas más restricciones o simplemente no pueden cruzar son los mexicanos o de otra nacionalidad con visa temporal, de turista o sin, o sin documentos. Por el otro lado, el cruce de Estados Unidos a México no tiene ninguna restricción. Hubo un momento que se anunció que se iba a cuestionar todo que cruzara y se le iba a inspeccionar su estado de salud. Sin embargo, esto no se ha implementado al 100%. Entonces, ¿qué pasa aquí? Ciudad Juárez y Tijuana son dos de las ciudades con un alto índice de infectados y de fallecidos. Las maquiladoras siguen produciendo, lo cual hace que personas de Estados Unidos crucen constantemente a México y que los empleados, operadores, residentes mexicanos se les exija seguir trabajando en condiciones no apropiadas. Esto ha resultado una serie de huelgas donde los empleados de las maquiladoras exigen recibir el salario completo durante el tiempo que duren las medidas de confinamiento y denuncian la falta de protección en los centros de trabajo, además de que muchos de los infectados y fallecidos han sido trabajadores de la maquiladora. Por ejemplo, el caso de Lear, que hace arneses y vestiduras automotrices, o el de Tecma, 
El tercer punto son las deportaciones que están siendo agilizadas por el gobierno de Trump y los deportados los están regresando al lado mexicano de la frontera. Los migrantes están a espera de que sus casos sean procesados y están esperando en los campamentos que se les asignaron. Cabe señalar que muchos albergues han cerrado por motivos de la pandemia. La el, el cuarto punto es la pérdida de trabajos que ha sido en algunos casos por las restricciones de cruzar Estados Unidos. Venga que mucha de la gente que cruza depende de esos trabajos en Estados Unidos valiéndose de su, de su visa de turista para trabajar desde, en ese estilo de vida transfronteriza. Eh, otro de los casos es la situación actual que se ha dado visibilidad en los medios de Tijuana, en donde las largas de espera son de muchas horas, donde las personas tienen que levantarse en la madrugada para, para poder cruzar. O sea, corriendo el riesgo de no cruzar y pues en muchos casos eso indica poder perder el trabajo, un menor salario. El quinto punto son los gobiernos federales que no están tomando en cuenta las dinámicas en conjunto que se llevan a cabo en ciudades fronterizas. Por ejemplo, uno de los infectados de una maquiladora se infectó en el lado mexicano y se fue a atender a un hospital en El Paso y falleció. Los datos dentro de bases militares como Fort Fleece no están siendo reportados. Oficiales de inmigración están siendo infectados. Muchos migrantes también es, una de, es uno de los sectores más vulnerables en la frontera. Entonces, uno de, de los puntos más importantes que quiero yo resaltar es que en este tipo de de regiones fronterizas es muy importante considerar ambos lados. ¿Por qué? Porque la data no se puede solamente basar desde un lado. Está en constante movimiento la, la dinámica que está sucediendo con la pandemia valiéndose de las regulaciones y de las políticas que están implementando ambos gobiernos federales y municipales. Y por otra parte, es la situación del muro, ¿verdad?, que sigue construyéndose y Trump sigue con sus amenazas denigrantes. Uno de los ejemplos más claros es que él está propiciando a que supuestamente se cierre la frontera completamente porque los infectados están entrando desde el lado mexicano lo cual es completamente erróneo. Sus declaraciones son completamente incorrectas. Y podemos ver otra vez una de las prioridades en cuanto a construir un muro en vez de en realidad implementar ese presupuesto en la crisis actual con lo de la pandemia. En conclusión, la situación de la pandemia en la frontera ha mostrado la vulnerabilidad 
y la resiliencia de los cuerpos en la frontera en relación con la interacción y codependencia que existe entre comunidades de ambos lados. Por lo tanto, es muy importante que al entender esta región e implementar políticas que consideren estas dinámicas, se trabaje en conjunto. Uno de los puntos, una de las cosas más importantes es que los cuerpos en la frontera son cuerpos que están en ambos lados, ¿verdad? Que, que su vida fluye con las dinámicas de lo que está sucediendo en el lado mexicano y con lo que está sucediendo en el lado estadounidense. Dependen de ambos lados. Entonces, estos cuerpos se encuentran en un estado más complejo que el solamente depender de de un gobierno y, y de una sola población. Eh, nuestra representante del Congreso, Verónica Escobar, en una videoconferencia que tuvo recientemente para el Instituto de Política Migratoria, enfatizó que el esparcimiento del coronavirus en las regiones fronterizas es un problema de gobiernos separados y no un problema de migración o movilidad transfronteriza. Por lo tanto, es necesario que poblaciones de ambos lados se cuiden y que los gobiernos federales y municipales estén conscientes, respeten las dinámicas que desempeña su población entre ambos lados de la frontera y apoyen las necesidades de la gente y no de los intereses capitalistas. Para cerrar, solamente quiero mencionar eso, que las comunidades fronterizas deben de cuidarse de ambos lados y, y ser mucho más conscientes de que el que estén abiertas esas maquiladoras en el lado, en el lado mexicano para el beneficio de las comunidades en el lado estadounidense al producir todos estos productos del capitalismo, al final, esas muertes del lado mexicano también van a afectar el lado, el lado estadounidense. Muchos pueden ser familiares, muchos pueden ser amigos. Este virus es algo global, ¿verdad? Y no se puede ver como algo de que, ay, mientras mi país esté bien, no me importa lo demás. No, estamos ante una situación en la que esto es algo global y se necesita una solución para todo el mundo, no para ciertos sectores donde las fronteras geopolíticas ahorita no dividen este problema y no, y no detienen esta situación. Entonces, con esto, con esto cierro, claro, hay temas que, que no pude abordar por... Por el, por el tiempo, pero en la sección de preguntas me gustaría que quienes estén interesados en hablar en cuanto a, a la división del lenguaje, ¿verdad? Que esto ha, ha limitado mucho eh, la protección de muchas comunidades, en este caso en la frontera, pues sí, eh, 
el, el español es, es dominante, sin embargo, no se, no se están distribuyendo las noticias desde ese aspecto. Muchas de las comunidades indígenas que viven en estas regiones que es otro de los aspectos muy importantes. Lo estamos viendo, por ejemplo, en Nuevo México con el alto número de infectados y de fallecidos. Y las comunidades este, rara, de los raramuris en, en Chihuahua. Y, y bueno, es otro de los aspectos es también la violencia de género, ¿verdad? A raíz de la cuarentena. Entonces, eh, muchas gracias y, y espero tener una conversación. Now we can uh, move to Aracelis. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be able to um, share a conversation today because it's been a very troubling and pressing issue and sometimes one thinks a lot or in informal conversations i know i haven't stopped thinking <laughs> for a long time now and it's good to have the opportunity to channel my thoughts a little bit and to be able to to share with all of you um so part of the of my Um, how do I say, uneasiness, is I would drive through Mass Street in Lawrence and I would see these banners announcing that we're all in this together, right? And every time I would drive by that, I would just feel angry for some reason. And I didn't know how to put that channel, that anger into like specific questions and grounded answers. And I just realized little by little, just the terrible dissonance between the discourse of saving others through our engagement in social distancing and the increased vulnerability of those so-called others who in fact are the majority of the population. And um, so I had everyday discussions. I would hear, you know, like all of you, I would get these WhatsApp messages and all these, um, you know, personal anecdotes of how to survive enclosure through yoga, cooking, online exercising. And simply put, it just seemed to me terribly, a terribly privileged discourse. And it was making me um, very uncomfortable, uh, particularly in the face of so many people without roof, without a home, populations on the move, millions of people who are actually enclosed for real in jails and refugee camps and in immigration detention centers. So I kept asking, I also kept asking myself, uh, and this is a little bit of the philosophical lack of answers and, you know, the turmoil in my mind. I kept asking myself the kind of world that we'd be living in if governments would respond with the same vigor that they responded to this, to other global health disasters, to climate change, to gender violence, to hunger, to poverty, to war. <laughs> uh, so um, anyways, it just is particularly salient that pandemics do not discriminate, but that governments and the healthcare system certainly do. And COVID-19 for me shed light in a brutal way on this reality. Uh, Manderson and Levine put in a recent article for the medical for medical anthropology, and I'm going to quote um, their words. They said, 
the likely transmission from privileged to underprivileged bodies is the nightmare scenario we must all attend to. The extent to which this mode of transmission has not tarnished the affluent with stigma is striking. Um, and I think this is very important because it was us, it was me who carried the virus. It was people that, like me, can go in flights, that go to conferences, that travel on business trips, cruises. It was us that spread that virus. And yet it is also us who are making now the claims about how we should care for each other through social distance, while the majority of those infected and dead, those now termed essential workers, could and cannot fulfill those moral imperatives that we are so proud and capable to enact. Um, so I would like to take this opportunity in five minutes to throw out some of um, the ways in which I think it's so important to think on uh, how the capacity to respond to COVID is uneven. And of course, it's uneven along the predictable fault lines of class and race and, and gender, and how in turn it is key to how events will unfold um, as the disease increasingly takes hold of our most vulnerable communities and spreads to the global south. And obviously in the global south is going to um, temperatures are decreasing and winter is coming, so the, the threat is even larger. And I did uh, put together a number of data and information that I can share if the questions come up. Um, but I will just share some general thoughts. Um, so part of the key um, part that I want to call attention is that health and migration policies go hand in hand. And I want to share three scenarios. So one of them is our caregivers. And Hannah shed some light on this already. But we do have this policy, this executive order from the Trump administration from 2017, um, known as Buy American and Hire American. And this obviously um, is not taking into account that 1.7 million medical and healthcare workers in the United States are foreign-born, that in vital research areas, immigrants account for 40% of medical and life scientists and 20% of biological scientists. Um, the Journal of American Medical Association notes that nearly one in six registered nurses, that is 16%, is foreign-born, uh, and that immigrants make up 23% of all nursing, psychiatric, and home health aides. So this policy of buy American and hire American, this executive order of 2017, made visa programs increasingly restrictive. And just to give an idea, the number of visa denials for high-skilled workers escalated from 6% in 2015 to 32% in 2019. Um, so these are part of those essential workers, and many of them are immigrants. And this includes about 35% international students, many of them at the University of Kansas that are um, unable to practice medicine likely and that are facing the, the restrictions of this COVID in their ability to be able to work and to be here. Um, the other essential workers, right, other essential workers that are all the hands that care for us, that pick our food, that clean our homes, that cut our meat, that the hands that are essential, those hands are mainly the hands of women and of women of color. And here we come with the public charge rule. The public charge rule made its way to through the U.S. court system. It came in effect in February 24 of 2020. Um, and many uh, families, parents of American children, decided to 
removed themselves from many assistance programs, including supplemental nutrition assistance programs, NAP, for example, because of fear of being deported or a fear of being um, deemed a public charge, right? Um, so when this was implemented in February 24th, um, the cases of COVID in the U.S. were 14. And one month later, the cases were 30,000 cases confirmed. So the public charge webpage then included a claimer saying that USCIS encourages, and I'm quoting from their website, encourages all those, including aliens, with symptoms that resemble coronavirus disease 2019 to seek necessary medical treatment or preventive services. Such treatment or preventive services will not negatively affect any alien as part of a future public charge analysis. So Kathleen Page and others in an article for the New England Journal of Medicine indicate very clearly what this is. It's too little and it's too late. So too little and too late because immigrants have faced relentless attack under the current administration with the tightening of the public charge rule, the threats to the DACA youth, the raids for immigration by immigration and customs enforcement, asylum restrictions, separation of families at the border, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, there is more than plenty for immigrants to be terrible, terribly scared of seeking medical assistance. And that is should they have access to medical assistance. And I'm going to share one small anecdote. I'm five minutes in. I have, uh, yeah, okay. So a small anecdote that kind of shows the links that I am trying to wrap my head around. Um, a worker for a cleaning contractor, a cleaning contractor that cleans most of the industry plants in Iowa and Illinois, and I will not mention the name, um, I have a friend, female, that works in for this cleaning contractor. This person was hired, um, is an undocumented person, um, as are most of the people working for this company. When she, she uh, started having symptoms of COVID, she went and sought medical attention. She came out positive. The health department then called the employer to check and see whether this person was going to work or not, which meant that the employer started looking into the case of this person and the consequence was that they fired this person. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is that this person is now facing deportation procedures. Um, so in a way, and at the same time, this person unenrolled her own children, one of them, with disability for fear of this public um, charge rule. And this person had already bought a home. And we also know that women and women of color and women of color and mothers are the main uh, targets of subprime laws since the 2008, um, particularly since 2008, but earlier. So in a way, this person now is facing a situation that many undocumented so-called essential workers, because they are essential, are facing, right? But this essential people that we celebrate, that we clap, that we uh, think that we're valuing, have no access to health care, have no homes, are losing their jobs, are being detained, and are being deported. And I think it is very, very important that this stays at the front of our of our minds. I do have quite a bit of, oh, in addition, I should add that the same person was sending remittances home, right? And that the, um, we know that remittances form work as a form of welfare, social welfare in many countries. Mexico is the third uh, receiver of remittances in the world. And um, I do have the data here of 
um, in the world for 2018, the amount of remittances was 689 billion, right? So anyway, she's with her remittances, she's sustaining a family back home as well, and who is taking care of her other children, of course, the grandmother, right? And the fact that this um, pandemic is starting to hit the global south, and in the global south, so many people are dependent on these remittances of our essential workers, and that in addition, the people in charge of the homes are marked as more vulnerable because of being in rural areas with lack of healthcare and um, elderly, many of them, right, in charge of the families is significant, and women as well. Um, so anyways, I also wanted to call attention to something that um, Silvia was uh, speaking about with the maquilas, right, and these hands that are involved in making all these essentials, right, how in Baja California, the second area most hit by the pandemic in Mexico, right, uh, making the TVs for us that are home <laughs> and doing social distance so that we can watch Netflix. And this is considered essential. So what is considered essential needs to be really thought through. And I'm going to use my um, two additional minutes to address a third um, area where health and immigration policy cross, which I can expand for a long time on, which is obviously all the populations detained in the various uh, detention centers in the US and the nearly 10,000 Mexicans and Central Americans that were expelled to Mexico less than three weeks after the new rules took effect on March 21st. Um, so the fact that in Guatemala out of 500 identified cases of COVID, 100 are the result of deportations from the U.S. is very telling. Um, and in addition, those populations that are um, in the border towns because of new policies regarding asylum seekers, right, putting everyone in danger as well. So I can expand on that later and I'll be happy to do so. And I did want to close um, with some remarks of why is this, all of this so relevant for gender and how it's crisscrossed by gender and race and class and ability and so many other fact factors, right? But I want to call attention to the fact that all forms of violence have diminished with the exception of gender violence that is on the rise in this scenario of COVID. Um, Laura Briggs and many others have called attention to the feminization of debt along what David Harvey calls the accumulation of dispossession. And in this case, Women and women with children are the ones accumulating most of the weight of debts prior to the COVID. Um, women are the bulk of the employees in most essential jobs, including um, all the maquilas along the border. Um, they make up most of the informal economy. In Mexico right now, 10 million people are out of the system, many of them actually immigrants as well, right? And Mexico is also doing its role in deporting people to Guatemala. So this creates a chain process, right, of people in vulnerable positions. But anyways, women make the bulk of the informal economy. Women are the suffering the consequences of these subprime laws that are uh, and race. And most of the new homeless people following 2008 were single mothers with children. Austerity measures 
like the rising school fees, healthcare costs, and food insecurity prior to COVID were overwhelmingly affecting women. And many economies rely on women migrants, such as the Dominican Republic, for instance, but many others. And the children of these women are being raised by grandmothers in countries where the COVID pandemic is growing right now. Most of them elderly, low, uh, low income, rural, and many of them illiterate. Um, and then uh, I did want to call attention to one last item that is a beautiful article that Cristina Rivera Garza wrote with the title, Del Verbo Tocar Las Manos de la Pandemia y Las Preguntas Inescapables. And she addresses the hands that touch what we touch. And how often, and I've experienced this with many of my courses where I try to I've tried so often to make my students aware of the fact that everything we have has been touched by all these hands, right? Because capitalism works through forgetting the body and making us feel that the bodies are not there. So um, Rivera Garza talks about how in a capitalism with no in entrails, sin entrañas, right? Um, it has convinced us of the absence of bodies and these bodies are now immense for, the, for their absence. And she calls to the question of whether it might be possible to participate in the birth of a state that has entrails, that has bodies. Um, and for that, the migratory reforms in migration and access to healthcare go hand in hand. Um, and Rita Segato has another beautiful piece on the pandemic where she reminds us of the necessity of the co-presence de la copresencia y la cocorporalidad, the co-presence and co-corporality, and the importance of physical communication that is non-verbal, and the importance of the presence of the body of the other. And she warns us of the great mistake, and I can see this happening, and it troubles me very much, of assuming that physical distance is not the same as social distance, because it is. Because it is, physical distance is a key contributor to social distance. And believing that it is not takes away the amount of people that rely on nonverbal communication. Because thinking that we can communicate through Zoom, that we can teach distance learning, that we can, is very much relying on one form of communication that is verbal, right? So I think in a way, um, we need to be very aware that the importance of the body should be now more than than ever. And that thinking of the of how much we miss the presence and the co-presence of other physical bodies is a way of moving towards a politics of tenderness and uncertainty. And um, one of the things that Rita Segato tells us is that if we're going to use this COVID pandemic to rethink possibilities and not return to a so-called normalcy that was never normal, as what was prior to this pandemic, right? She says that one of the ways is to change our desires. Si cambia lo que deseamos, cambia el mundo. If we change what we look forward, our world will change, and then transformation will be possible. So I'll leave it there, and we can continue discussing. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Araceli. With that, we'll take a brief break, and then when we come back, we'll begin our conversation in, in full. Oh, 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 oh. 